I am so thankful for them and uh, just uh, the, the worship music that the Lord has allowed us to be able to sing from our hearts with truth and with sincerity. And what an amazing hymn that Wesley one was, and can it be? Well, we continue what we began last week, which was a short series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you'll find your place in the Word of God, um, the title of this message is The Portrait of Love part one, because we're going to be in this for a couple of weeks. And so looking at the verses four to eight, four to seven, um, probably three weeks the way it's looking at this point. But um, I have been excited about studying this. And um, last week, having introduced the idea of the folly of if you can speak with uh, great eloquence and even um, great preaching and speaking and teaching gifts, but if you lack love it is empty. It is nothing. You're bankrupt. And so now Paul moves into this most full and complex description, really, of what love does. It's like many facets on a diamond. You know, if you see a, a large diamond and, and all the different facets and you reflect it in the light, you can see the light reflecting off of all of these facets. And that's really what Paul does. Of course, he is, he's, he's, he's very, he's writing the inspiration of the Word of God. This is scripture, but then he reflects other concepts that are found throughout the Bible, uh, in each of these terms that he uses. Now, all of them that he uses are verbs. Even though they look like adjectives in our English translations, these are all verbs, all 15 of them. So it's not so much what love is, but what love does and does not do because there's positive and negative ones listed. And all 15 of these beautifully portray the character and the person of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of, what, of, of who and what Christ is for us. Paul's purpose is not merely to teach the church at Corinth of what love does, but to challenge the church at Corinth where they were failing in these areas of love. That with the goal that they would change their behavior, that there would be a repentance from the heart. Real Christian love does not arise so much from the easy circumstances that we're encountering throughout our days and weeks but Paul describes a love that even in the most difficult of circumstances, what, how is love to respond to these? God puts difficult things in our life to try us, to test us, to see if we can respond in the proper way. And so this love must be exercised not only with those who are easy to get along with and those whom we love, but even with difficult people that we are encountering, and it provides ultimately an opportunity to do what? Apply the gospel itself. This is where the rubber meets the road of the Christian life. This love is concerned for the well being of others more than oneself. So let's read verses 1 to 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 
It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired word and and even this particular letter of the great apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for its context surrounded by the use of spiritual gifts in the context of the church in chapter 12 and 14. And, and, And as Paul puts it, I show you a more excellent way. Lord, we come as a needy people needing to learn this excellent way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would instruct our hearts by your word. We confess your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, as you, as the great physician, would take the scalpel as the word is preached and pull back layers, perhaps, of, of areas where we've been failing and ways that we can change our behavior to glorify you, we invite that and we ask, Lord, ultimately that Christ would be exalted In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those first uh, three verses, uh, we talked about those conditional clauses. Paul's giving some examples. If I were to speak, he's using first person, the tongues of men. He ramps it up each time as he goes through, or even with the tongues of angels, but have not love. I'm just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He goes on to say, and he ratchets it up. If I have, and you know, the all is emphatic all prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have all faith. But if I do not have love, I'm a big fat zero. Doesn't matter. All the eloquent gifts, all the eloquent teaching gifts, if you lack love, it's nothing. He goes on to say that if, if, even if I did the most extreme demonstration of love and I gave away every single item that I own and gave the money to the poor, If I do that with the wrong motive, it profits me nothing. Yea, even if I give up my body to be given away as a slave, to become a bondservant, or even as the translations, the modern translations have uh, to be burned, or whatever it means, but giving of, of your very self, and you lack love, it profits you nothing. And so it boils down to our motive. What is our motive in these things? Is it self-promotion? Is it pride? Is it the praise of men? Or is it the edification of the saints and the building up of the church of Christ with a true attitude and a heart of love? Well, today we will unpack, begin to unpack Paul's central section here. And it is verses 1 to 3, sort of like a bookend, and verses 8 to 13 is a bookend. And then this is the central section and, and, and this is the, the, the way it's structured, where the emphasis is to lie. And so we want to begin to unpack this, this middle section. Now, the way he lists them is he's got two positive, eight negative, and then five more positive at the end. We're going to look at the first two positive ones, which are really a sermon on each of those uh, in and of itself, and then look at the first three negative ones. So our, the substance of our text is going to be verse 4, verse 4. And I trust that the mirror of God's word will show us 
As, as, we, as we put the scriptures in front of us, it will show us where we're failing and where we're excelling and ways that we can excel better in doing these things. And, and I, I mean, you mentioned before, it's like some of us thought we kind of understood this, but we need to wipe out the hard drive of our brain and, and allow the Holy Spirit to instruct us and to uh, start with, as it were, a blank disk and allow the Word of God only to come you see, you can have all the flashy gifts of the world, but if you lack love, you are nothing. So two simple points. The positive, the first two positive ones, love is patient and kind. And secondly, the first three negative ones, love is not an arrogant braggart. So beginning in verse 4, the first phrase, love is patient. Love is patient. And you know, when, when, you know, when, if you're like me and you begin to hear a sermon or a study on patience, you get a little uneasy because you realize, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, that I realize that I can be very impatient at times. And, and so you kind of get a little, you know, man, but, but, but that's what this is. And we are often put to the test in God's perfect providence and his sovereign rule to, to allow us to see our impatience. Our, our impatience. And so he says, love is patient. The older translations, I think, capture it a little bit better. Love suffers long. Love suffers long. And that, that grasps more of the concept. Of course, patience is an Old Testament concept. You see it again and again in the Psalms. And, and it's usually reflected in the psalmist waiting upon the Lord. Enemies are coming upon him. He's cried out, he's prayed, but I will wait upon the Lord. And that's really the idea behind this. It's a fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. It's something that we put on like a garment in in Colossians chapter 3. And this patience is more than just having a tranquil heart. Okay, that sounds kind of nice, right? But a BDAG, one of probably the best lexicon out there, says this it's to bear up under provocation without complaint. To bear up under provocation without complaint. That's somebody getting into your face or irritating you to the point to where it's the same as getting into your face and not um, retaliating. Patience is the ability to be taken advantage of and inconvenienced by someone over and over and over and over again without retaliation and not becoming angry. Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Proverbs nineteen eleven. it is a man's glory to overlook a transgression. And that's what you do with patience. You're overlooking things. You're not retaliating constantly. You can say that you have patience, but where that is tested is in the reality of living the Christian life among other Christians. See, if you got the mountaintop idea of all the Christian life, it's me and God up on the mountain or whatever, there's not really going to be an opportunity to be inconvenienced in any way. It's just you, right? Unless you, you inconvenience yourself. But it's in the context of living the Christian life in the community, the covenant community of the church, also our individual families that provides the context for this to be lived out. The interpersonal relationships, as it were. Think of the the circumstances and the people that are in your life that can try your patience. I think there's more the idea of a people relational type idea being communicated here, but there's circumstances that inconvenience us too to where we can sin in this way 
So when your spouse treats you in a way that tries your patience, Paul is saying that you are to wait upon God. You're not to retaliate. When your teenager that you've been shepherding and washing with the word begins to go astray and is living a rebellious life, you wait upon the Lord. You're patient. You're not retaliating. So much of this virtue has to do with trusting God and allowing God to change the heart of the person that's offending you. It should really drive us to our knees. Does that make sense? It should drive us to our knees, and this is a huge concept to grasp. So when you feel offended or irritated as though you have been wronged, this fruit enables you to wait upon the Lord Patience is slow in avenging, slow in becoming angry. Now, you have to understand, this is the first century of the Greco-Roman world. I mean, the idea of humility, the idea of of, uh, being slow to anger and not avenging yourself was looked down upon as a deficiency. It was looked down upon as a weakness, a huge weakness. But that's the whole countercultural thing, isn't it, with the Christian life and how we are to live. Christians are different. Christians have been transformed. We've got new hearts. We can now live in a different way. We can put aside the macho type of thing that's retaliating all of the time. George Swinock, one of the Puritans, said, to lengthen my patience is the best way to shorten my troubles. So think about that. All of the little difficult things and all of that, as you lengthen your patience, less of those things irritate you and bother you. So to lengthen patience is the best way to shorten troubles. Some of you have heard of uh, Operation Mobilization, uh, short-term missions training. I don't know a whole lot about them, but I read this week that uh, one of the ways that they train people to go on the mission field, pretty uniquely, they put them on ships, very tight, compact ships, and they live for a period of time together. And they're in a, a situation to where there's people from up to 40 different nations, uh, with tight quarters. They're normal people with the same character flaws as the rest of us, but yet they're forced to live together and to work out the differences and details every time a difficulty comes. So in other words, they learn biblical love in those adverse circumstances. Paul commands those who are elect, those who have been chosen by God in Colossians. So as those who have been chosen by God holy and beloved, beloved of God and holy and set apart, sanctified, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So that's the clear command that applies to every single one of us who are in Christ. Calvin goes so far as to say that when there is no patience, there is not even a spark of faith. In other words, it's the mark of a genuine believer. That there, should be, we should, there should be some fruit of patience in your life. It's a fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul. Uh, Brother Massimo read from Acts chapter 7 in our New Testament reading. You have the example of the first Christian martyr, that's there, and they, it says in the last two verses of the chapter, they went on stoning Stephen, and he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, smite them all. I hate them. Nope, that's not what he said. What did he say? <laughs> he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
That is one who has suffered long to the point of being stoned to death with all of the blood running about to breathe his last. And this is what's on his heart. Don't hold this sin against them, Lord. It might have something to do with just the previous couple of verses where he says he sees the Lord Jesus in a vision standing. And in light of seeing the Savior the one that has bled and died for your sins. How could you ever wish evil upon anyone, even if they're killing you? But a remarkable, remarkable verse. James, uh, the context of believers being mistreated and persecuted in some ways, he says in 5.7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for his precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now we know that the supreme example of this patience is where? It's in God. I mean, read your Bibles. Study church history. God is immensely patient. It's the Lord himself. Think upon the millions, even this very day, that are shaking their fist at God, that are cursing God with their mouths, where their whole lives have been one of destruction and mayhem, and yet God does not smite them. Think of the people, that the atheists in their speeches that will say, I'm going to give God five minutes to zap me dead and that kind of thing. And what, just trying God. I mean, you'd think God would just, you know, finally become, that's it, boom, but he doesn't. And that's exactly what Peter tells us. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. There's a man named Edwin Stanton that spoke evil of Abraham Lincoln on many occasions. And as the report goes, Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, never replied or defended himself in any way, shape, or form. Later, when it came time to appoint a war minister for the U.S., Abraham Lincoln appointed Stanton When questioned why, why this man who hates your guts, he said, because he's the best man for the job. Well, when Lincoln was assassinated, uh, Stanton stood above Lincoln and said, there lies the greatest leader the world has ever had. Though he disagreed and despised his politics, he admired his patience. What a wonderful, just a beautiful illustration here. So love is patient, and you want implication, we are not as patient as we need to be. And so this is what love does. Love suffers long. But also, love, if you look at next, love is kind. Love is kind. Um, since these are verbs, the sub-point I have is love does acts of kindness. These first two qualities are paired together well. Love is patient, which suffers long. Love shows acts of kindness, which is, which is active. It's kind of like two sides of one coin. And again, the, the, a lot of these uh, verbs that Paul uses um, are not found anywhere else, even in um, extra-biblical literature. Uh, some think that some of these words, and this is one that Paul coined himself, the noun version of this word, to be kind, occurs many times, mostly speaking of God's good kindness to us. But here he tweaks it and makes it a verb, and it's the only place where it's found in the Bible and in extra-biblical literature. 
It means to show kindness, to be merciful. Um, another lexicon says, to provide something beneficial for someone as an act of kindness, to act kindly. Dr. John MacArthur says, it is an act of goodwill, not only feeling generous, but is generous, not only desiring others' welfare, but working for it. So it's taking the initiative for others' welfare and goodness. Jesus talks about this in the context of loving your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount and in other sections. If anyone wants to sue you to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Later he says, give to him who asks and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Love of this kind responds with tender compassion. That's, that's what this is. It's tender, a tender and a compassionate heart with the spirit of forgiveness. Why? Because we know the gravity, the mountain of our own sin and how that's been forgiven. How that's been, according to Colossians 2, nailed to the cross as my Savior died for me. All of my sin, that mountain of sin, Christ took upon himself, upon his own shoulders, as he was enduring the wrath of God on the cross. And because I am keenly aware of that mountain that Christ took upon himself on the cross, I must forgive others. Tender, compassionate heart, with the spirit of forgiveness because Christ was kind to me. How could I not be kind to others? Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And brethren, the testing ground to find out if you are patient and kind is in the context of your own home. You husbands, are you kind to your wives? Are you patient with them? Are you suffering long with them? Are you being critical all the time? Um, these, these types of things. Wives with your children, with, and also with our kids, but also wives to the husband and the children as well. Is there patience? Is there kindness that's there? Even siblings, you siblings that like to fight and squabble. Mine don't do that as much anymore, but they sure had a fair share of it. Being patient, suffering long, and being kind is so vital. And of course, our great God has the most perfect kindness, Titus 3. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. When the kindness of God appeared, uh, that is, when it was manifested. How is it manifested? Manifested in lots of different ways as you just survey the entire Bible. But especially this time of year that we celebrate the incarnation. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, what did He do? He saved us. Because we had all these good works? No, not at all. It's not on those basis of those deeds. But according to His Great mercy. What a beautiful example of kindness. So as we want to demonstrate kindness and to do 
kind acts and, and those kinds of things. We, we need to think that it's not just you know, going through the motions of something, but it's being impacted with the fact that the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts if you're children of God. And then that becomes the motive. That becomes the, the measure, as it were, that you demonstrate kindness to others. So taking the first term, patience, to bear patiently and to wait long, now, with this one, though, it's something more active that we do, and at the risk of sounding a little mushy like the bumper stickers, you know, um, do random acts of kindness. There's actually a little bit of truth to that bumper sticker, as much as I disregarded it. There's more to it. It's in the context of this, this chapter, of course. But we are to do and to promote acts of kindness. The verbs that Paul are using here are continuous present tense verbs. It's not something you do once. Oh, I did that last year. <laughs> no, it's, it's something continual. It's something that, that is to be habitual. That means the actions and the attitudes that Paul is setting forth here is something that is to be ingrained in our very nature by sheer repetition. It becomes part of who we are. Of course, this is a lifelong process, as is sanctification and all of its other areas. So love suffers long, does kind acts. Secondly, and negatively now, let's look at the next three. And first, um, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Now this word, it means to have a strong desire, and it can be used good in a good way or in a negative way in the New Testament as many of the other words. It's to have strong negative feelings over another's achievements or success to be filled with jealousy. So that's the, the idea of the negative connotation. Actually, if you look at 12.31, just right before 13.1, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. That's the word, earnestly, right there. So it's translated in a, in a positive light. Actually, 14.1 uh, on the other page, pursue love, let yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. There it is. So to be jealous, to long for in an earnest way. But here, it's in a negative sense. Love is not jealous. So these next eight all have the, um, the negative in front of the verb, and so it is not this, not that. And so one other place that this occurs is a familiar passage in biblical counseling, uh, James 4.2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, that is actually you're envious, and you cannot obtain, and so you fight, and you quarrel. So some versions have jealousy. Um, my version does. The ESV, I believe, has envy. They're, they're interchanged with the different translations, but the word, it does encompass both. But I, I would put it like this. Jealousy says, I want what my neighbor has. But jealousy on steroids is envy, and that's the idea I wish they did not have what they have. You see the difference? I, I, I want what they have, but that's one thing. But then I wish that they didn't have that. In fact, I, I hope they wrecked that brand new car. It's that kind of thinking. Hopefully you don't say that, but that's that kind of thing. And a picture of this envy is so beautifully portrayed in 1 Kings 3. We just read the, the whole passage there. Solomon displays his impeccable wisdom that is given from God as a gift and the dispute between these two harlots. 
And when her own infant son died, she exchanged the dead one for the living one. And when Solomon ordered the baby cut in half, the real mother says, no, spare it. I'm happy to even not even have it, but to know that, that it will live. And so obviously Solomon knew right then who the real mother was. But let, think of that envious thought. No, yeah, cut the baby in half. That's the envy. I don't want her. Mine died. I don't want her to have a living one. When was the last time you were envious of someone? When's the last time that you found yourself uh, sinning in this way? And it's this is a it's one of these heart sins, right? It's it's something. There's not a red light that says I'm being envious right now of Colin or whatever. Like there's not a flashing light or anything. It's a heart sin. It's something between you and the Lord. That's why the proverb says, "Watch over your heart with all diligence." For from it flow the springs of life. So think of that fellow student, maybe in the workplace, that you've been jealous, maybe even in the church, of someone's ministry or something like that. Guard yourself from this jealousy, this envy. Jesus says, out of the heart flow all of these wicked things in Mark chapter 7. Furthermore, envy can eat away at you until you actually do something that you will regret. You think of this in the world, and, um, you know, but I mean, taken to the nth degree, it is murder, isn't it? Envy can eat away at you like an aggressive cancer. That's why you've got to mortify it. As you're praying, search my heart, O God. See if there be any hurtful way in me asking the Spirit to search and bring out the spotlight and to shine it upon your life. As that is pointed out, repent of it, mortify it, kill it, and get rid of it. I mean, think of the biblical examples that we have of this sin. Why did Cain kill Abel? Jealous of his offering, right? There's, there's jealousy there. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and the coat, the multi-colored coat, and sold him into slavery. Haman envies Mordecai and builds these wonderful gallows and is going to plot to destroy the Jews. Of course, Haman's hung on his very own gallows. Think of the prodigal son, the elder brother. Remember, he wasn't in that festive spirit when the father embraced the young son coming. Kill the fatted calf. Give him the, the signet ring and all of that. Here comes the older brother. You never did that for me. You know, why would you do that for him? And there's many other examples. James 3.14 talks about if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And by the way, jealousy and envy is a selfish ambition. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic to know that that's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from above when you're experiencing those things. So love does not envy. Secondly, it says, love does not brag. Love does not brag or boast about themselves. Ironically, if you think about this, bragging and boasting is trying to make others jealous, right? We just talked about love is not jealous and envious, but when you brag and you boast, you're hoping to make somebody else jealous of what you're, you're talking about. So it's very interesting to see how Paul connects these. And the Corinthian saints 
love to show off their gifts. They love to show off their offices. Once again, here it's um, the, only here in the New Testament, but uh, it's, it is an extra biblical language. It means a, a pompous windbag. <laughs> that, that's one way, or the way one man uh, described it. It means to play the braggart. One who loves to sing his own praises, to heap praise upon himself, always speaking about themselves. Have you met anybody like that? They just they can't stop talking about themselves, and, and you can't even get something in or another subject in. They're talking about themselves. As one man said, these are people who sing their own praises, usually do so without accompaniment. <laughs> In other words, it's only them. There's no accompaniment. It's not this accompaniment that we just had up here uh, singing those worship songs. Such a person parades his embellished rhetoric to gain recognition. His behaviors uh, motivated and marked by egotism and a a deep disrespect for uh, superiors and condensation towards subordinates. By the way, who are we called to exalt? It's not ourselves. It's not ourselves. We're called to exalt God, to lift him up. He's the one that we want to brag on. Look at the glory of God. Look at what he's done for me. That's who we are to exalt and bring ourselves down low through humility. You see, you can't serve two masters, Jesus says, right? You can't, you can't love yourself so much and claim to love God. It doesn't work that way. C.S. Lewis said, bragging is the utmost evil. A braggart exhibits this rank pride in himself and his accomplishments. But such bragging is devoid of true love to God and true love to one's neighbor. And then there's another form of this, and that's the the false humility. The the pride is the root of of these, right? But but this this idea of a false humility that's a self-depreciation, no one likes me. No one appreciates what I do. I, you know, I, I'm never receiving compliments and, and all of that. That's pride. <laughs> that is pride. It's just a reverse pride. Like many of these negative traits that Paul lists here, it's very interesting that when others do these things to us, it gets under our skin, right? Like, ah, I wish that person could just see how much they're boasting about themselves or or whatever, or being jealous, or this type of thing. But we're off, often blind to the fact that we are guilty of these things as well. And so others are being irritated by our behavior. And we need to examine ourselves in that light. We can often, when we're telling a story, giving a testimony, put ourselves in a better light than really happened. Just color it a little bit. Just embellish it just a little bit. Not too much, you know, but... but, but and we can all be tempted to that. We need to mortify that because that's not true Christian love. We live in the selfie generation where it's all about me, all about magnifying myself, you know, profile pictures updated three times a day and all this kind of stuff on social media and Instagram and all instant gratification and all of this kind of stuff. How many likes did I get on that one? Why well, better do another one? You know, it's all about self. And our culture is breeding this. And how antithetical it is to Christian love. Walking in simplicity, 
walking in humility, keeping our words to be few, uh, being slow to anger. Also, you hear people say, especially young people these days, that, well, I really can't learn how to love others because I don't feel loved enough myself. You know, these kinds of things. Look, Jesus never retaliated. Turn to Philippians. Turn to Philippians, please, chapter 2. He humbled himself even as he's being cruelly treated, but also he never exalts himself or boasts about himself. Look at verse 6, or verse 5, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus doesn't empty himself one minute and then quickly exalt himself. No, but who exalts him? It's the Father, right? For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name. Well, love is not jealous or envious. Love does not brag. But now, our our fifth term here, love is not arrogant. This means to be puffed up, to have an exaggerated self-conception, to be proud of oneself. It's related to the previous verb. Here, it's more of an inward disposition. On the previous one, it's more of an outward display and boasting and with your words. This is more of an inward disposition. You're arrogant. And it's interesting because Paul, one of the commentators brought this out, uh, Paul uses this verb or this word seven times. Six of them are in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so Corinth was known for being arrogant. Many of them prided themselves on possessing knowledge and extra knowledge and, and exalted their offices and their gifts and all that. But Paul, however, says to them, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up, you could say. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Love is constructive. It builds up. It edifies. Whereas arrogant seeks to destroy. Turn back to chapter 4 of this letter, please. Chapter 4. Verses 18 and 19, Paul uses it twice. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to see you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Chapter 5 and verse 2, and and, uh, here it says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. So the arrogance of this one who, if you look at verse 1, they became so arrogant, so puffed up, and were sinning in such blatant ways where he says that someone has his father's wife. You've become so arrogant as to see that such a thing without removing him. What arrogance. William Carey, the father of modern missions, of course, labored in India His um, upbringing was a very, very simple home. He worked as a cobbler. And 
the Indians would often ridicule him about this. And at one formal dinner party, uh, one of the um, young men, a man trying to stir up some strife, says, I understand that you were a shoemaker, Mr. Carey. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I was just a shoe repairman, not, not a shoemaker. So you see just that idea. And then John the Baptist, of course, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. How we need to tell ourselves that verse again and again. So these last two terms are manifestations of pride that's here. Um, the idea of bragging and being arrogant. Love is incompatible with them all. Love is concerned to give oneself, not to just assert oneself with boasting. Well, a couple points of application as we wrap up. I trust the Spirit of God has convicted you on some level, at least with uh, one or more of these terms, and something that should be uh, something of focus of your life. And, And I would encourage you to memorize this section of Scripture, meditate upon it, meditate upon what we've talked about and what that looks like. And may the Lord be pleased to even transform our interpersonal relationships, our, um, even our homes in, in such a way. Let us invite this into our lives to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Philippians uh, uh, 2.3 talks about um, having regard for others. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Be others-focused, not look out for your own concerns. Our modern-day culture, people are constantly saying, I'm offended, I'm offended, I feel offended, my rights have been violated, even yourselves. You know, that person that cuts you off on the freeway or the person who cut in front of you at the uh, grocery store or whatever, you feel like you've been offended. And and ask yourself, how often, even just in this past week, have your perceived rights been offended? But just know that even by your behavior, that you have also offended others. And so to keep short accounts before God and be sensitive to those things. All of these attitudes are common to men, but Jesus never indulged in any of these. Even being under pressure and persecuted and being put to death, it says in 1 Peter 2.23, and for while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So much of this is just submitting bowing before the providence of God, trusting that He is ruling and, 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 and orchestrating all things for our good and our own spiritual growth. And when He does pull back the layers and reveal these weaknesses and failures, uh, we want to humble ourselves. We want to repent. We want to ask God to cultivate these things in a, in a greater way in our own lives to the point to where others will notice and recognize Ezekiel Hopkins, one of the Puritans, says, Patience is the ballast of the soul that will keep it from rolling and tumbling in the greatest of storms. It's the ballast of the soul to submit to the sovereignty of God and to know that he's in control. And if you're outside of Christ, realize that you're in a very dangerous 
situation today. If you're here today and you've walked in here and you know you are not a Christian, you are in a precipice on the edge of destruction. You will stand before the judge someday and answer for your entire life, every deed that you've ever done. But also think about how God in his goodness has been kind to you, even in your rebellion, even with with you not serving him by his common grace. Paul writes in Romans 2.4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Some, many who are outside of Christ, they think lightly of his patience and his kindness that he's demonstrated But this is meant to draw us to repentance, a turning from our sin. I warmly invite you here today, if you're outside of Christ, come to Jesus, who's a beautiful, suitable Savior, who will receive you. Now the door of opportunity stands open. But you have to be willing to cut off sins, to change your life, and then experience that fullness of life that we get when we follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And it's unbelievable to to think that we've only taken one verse and looked at five verbs in this description. I feel the surface. But Lord, we know that even as you multiplied uh, the bread, the loaves and the fishes, Lord, we pray that you'd multiply your word in our hearts and in our minds in the coming weeks. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.